It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm your host, Anne McElvoy. And this week, we're asking, what's the impact of Donald Trump on America's cities? It's a subject that seems to exercise the president. What's going on in Chicago? I said the other day, what the hell is going on? Democrats. <laughs> Just blocks away is the Empire State Building. It took 11 months to build the Empire State Building. But today, it can take as long as a decade and much more than that just to get approvals to start construction of a fairly routine highway. There's the tweet. If Chicago doesn't fix the horrible carnage going on, 228 shootings, 42 killings, up 24%, I will send in the feds. I've met police that are great police that aren't allowed to do their job because they have a pathetic mayor or a mayor doesn't know what's going on. This is week two of a special three-part series on Donald Trump's first year in the White House. In the last episode, we explored Trump's effects on Washington politics. Now I've traveled to Chicago and to New York City, where I'm standing amid the bustle and bright lights of midtown Manhattan. I've come to these places to get a sense of what's bothering Trump about the state of the American metropolis and how are each city's power players responding in turn to the presidency. Well, these questions have brought me from uptown to underground. It's like a vast railway hall. You can probably yes. hear my voice echoing around. Yeah. That's me several hundred feet below Manhattan talking about Trump and infrastructure with former Deputy Mayor Ken Lipper. Whatever funding is being given has been going to the red states, the states that voted Republican, for more rural projects. And they even let me come up again to the glitzier environs of Fifth Avenue in New York with author Vicki Ward to talk about the backlash against Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump in their hometown. They no longer are welcome in New York. All their former Democratic liberal friends really want nothing to do with them. But first, I met Rahm Emanuel, a prominent Democrat serving both in the Clinton and Obama administrations, the latter as chief of staff. He's now Chicago's outspoken mayor. Rahm and Donald Trump have come to blows pretty often on matters ranging from crime to immigration. So how does he intend to redress his own problems in the city under the critical glare of an equally outspoken president? I went to City Hall in Chicago to find out. Meralties have their peaks, and yes, Rahm was very vocal about his. I think this is the best job I've ever had, and I've had two stints in the White House, senior advisor to President Clinton and chief of staff to President Obama. But what about the valleys? Uh, doing a podcast with uh, The Economist magazine, but, uh, no, yeah, but uh, that's no. There's valleys in the sense of uh, setbacks. There are personal things. I made it a, what started off as just wanting to, uh, if a parent had lost a child or had a child affected by gun violence, I try to call them all. 
but I don't do it as mayor. I do it as a father of three children because I don't think any parent should try to go through any of that by themselves. And that's the low point. The valleys, you know, look, you're a mayor of a major urban center, a cultural, economic, and intellectual engine that is home to people of 140 different languages, 77 different neighborhoods, people from all walks of life, and you're trying to create a singular vision and mission that includes everybody. That has good days, bad days. Let me say this. It has good hours, bad hours, okay, in a single day. A mayor can do things, make a decision on policy, and then see the end result, which is not, not only a physical, but also how it's impacted people's lives in a dramatic way. Well, let's talk about something that is impacting lives and and, and views it in a a very dramatic way. And that is your declaration of Chicago as a Trump-free zone. Um, That was after the administration announced it was going to rescind DACA. I'm working on that every day, every hour. He has uh, declared a very, very legal, constitutional, every other way, hostility to immigrants. It's not just dreamers. He's also challenging the city welcoming city ordinance. We, we welcome immigrants from around the globe. We took the uh, Trump administration to court, beat them, not just for the city of Chicago, but nationally, that the police department, the health, schools, all the other entities are not to become an immigration service and turn people over. I think that would be a horrible thing. So Is that what, I, what a Trump-free zone means, just to lay it on the line? I'm giving you the biggest illustration, but yes. I also think I don't want the type of uh, divisive culture and rhetoric of Donald Trump's administration, where he pits one type of citizen against another. I'm trying to build a city where everybody of all different walks of life feel they have a stake in the future. Donald Trump is trying to build a culture in which you pit one group of people based on either sexual orientation, race, ethnicity, language, heritage, background against each other. So I want not only legally, constitutionally, and in every other way, the city of Chicago to be a Trump-free zone. Is there any danger of city mayors? The idea of cities versus the president is maybe one that's got a bit more currency these days. Do you think there are any dangers in that? I have uh, had a friend in the White House and a friendly administration. I prefer that relationship to the one. But I will, based on primary values, fight this administration because I think it's antithetical to what we're trying to build. It's not a partner. And in fact, if anything, it's trying to undercut cities. Every metropolitan area they're trying to undercut, and therefore it's worth fighting for. Well, that made me wonder really why Donald Trump had spoken so much about Chicago, possibly because you'd annoyed him, but uh, is there a deeper reason why you think he, in that well, sense, verbally guns for Chicago? Is, uh, what are the elements to that? Look, I, when I first met with him when he was president-elect, talking about welcoming cities slash sanctuary cities, I said, look, I I disagree with you on every level morally, but let me just not approach it on a moral level. I said, you have a big investment here in Chicago. He goes, yes. I said, you have a big investment in New York. He said, yes. I said, you have a big investment in D.C. He said, yes. You have other cities you're investing in? Yes. I said, have you noticed that any city that you invest in, they're all sanctuary cities? Why don't you go invest in a city that's not a sanctuary city? You don't invest in those cities because they're not dynamic cities. We're dynamic cities because we welcome immigrants. I said, so as a real estate developer, let's follow the money. And because you didn't persuade him then. It's not that it, you know you asked a different question. So let me let me try to stay with your first question. Your first question was uh, why does he pick on Chicago? I don't think he particularly enjoyed, not made fun of, but actually since the guy loves to measure everything by how much money he has, that I basically said okay, here's where the Trump money's going, 
and it's inconsistent with Trump policies. Where are you on the term sanctuary cities? Because I thought you... I you don't had, like it. I know, but you've used it a lot. No, I've only used it because you used it, and it sounds like you're... It's that's all. Thought. Yeah, I'm, I like to blame you. I, I'm a welcoming city because I want immigrants to feel at home here. I think that is exactly the way uh, this city treated my grandfather 100 years ago when he came from Eastern Europe to flee the pogroms of Europe. Chicago welcomed an immigrant by the name of Herman Shmulevitz who couldn't even speak English. By Trump's standards, he would be an illegal immigrant. His grandson is the mayor of this city. That tells you the values of Chicago and the values of this country, and I still believe in it. That was Rahm Emanuel there. We'll return to him in just a moment. Getting a building approved in New York is a horrible, horrible thing. And that's nothing compared to when you get into the highways and the dams. They don't even talk Donald about Trump dams. has been a frequent critic of the pace of planning permission. Now he hopes to inject a bit of cash into America's infrastructure to speed things along. So we have to build roads, we have to build highways. We're talking about a very major infrastructure bill of a trillion dollars, perhaps even more. And but will it work? He fits the idea of believing that the individual makes everything happen. Uh, and I don't think he has had much experience with government except as a demander of largesse from the government. So he's now having to learn to be on the other side. And, uh, and it's very difficult if your whole life is built around doing it yourself, doing it with banks, asking the government for tax breaks or whatever, to now be on the other side of it. Ken Lipper was deputy mayor under Ed Koch in the 1980s, with an intriguing back catalogue as a writer of the novels behind the movies Wall Street and City Hall. So it's a real shift from one end of the telescope to the other. And it takes learning, and, and it's, I, I sympathize with him in, in his uh, situation of not kind of understanding how this big, blunt instrument uh, kind of works, because he's always been on the other side of it. And so it's no wonder to demonstrate his thesis on Donald Trump and infrastructure that he took to showing, not just telling. I'm not sure whether it's going to be hot or cold down there, Ken. What's it going to be like? It'll be cold. It'll be comfortable. (laughs) Ken and a team of engineers, including Andrew Kuczynski, Chief of Staff Maintenance, lured me a good 150 feet below Manhattan. These are one of our better elevators. (laughs) The smallest chance is real regular. I'm very pleased to be in your VIP elevator. (laughs) (laughs) Here's our diaphragm again. Wow. And this is our one of our three main valve chambers. So this is called a, the valve chamber? A main valve chamber, yes. So it's like a vast railway hall. You can probably yes. hear my voice echoing around. Yes. Team economists safely to the bowels of the earth and back again. <laughs> Ken, can you tell us a bit about the history of the water tunnels? This project is, I think, it's the third, really, of, of three big ones in New York. When does it start? What gets it going, and how did we end up where we are now? The first water tunnel was uh, started at the beginning of the 20th century, and uh, these, and the second, uh, numbers of years later, these tunnels have stayed in service continuously and have not been able to be renovated because you couldn't turn off the supply or you literally have queens go out of business. What would have happened if this that we're seeing today, if it didn't exist in the form that I'm now looking at it? Well, the population of New York has exploded. 
times are very different and we're expecting another million people in the next 20 years to move in here. Uh, and areas of the city, uh, like along the East River in Queens and others, have suddenly come to life uh, and, uh, and whole new neighborhoods in Brooklyn. Everything is being rebuilt with a, an infusion of a new population and we would not be able to accommodate that growth without the pre-positioned infrastructure available. So New York City would virtually be starved from new population and growth if these men didn't continue to build it. And so the Water Authority segregated funds which at that time were very, very scarce uh, and dedicated them to this great project so that we can make sure that New York could exist and grow in the future. And what's the situation now? Because we know that funding is very tight, funding in the cities is tight. We've had Donald Trump coming in, New Yorker as it happens. He talked about a big stimulus. Maybe you thought that some money might be there on tap or maybe it wasn't. Normally we get financing in part from the federal government. That financing has stopped or slowed considerably. Whatever funding is being given has been going to the red states, the states that voted Republican, for more rural projects. Uh, the cities have not uh, experienced uh, the same flow that they had before. It just happened that they're blue states and uh, big cities and mostly in blue states. And uh, so that's one, one problem. The second problem is that the current Congress has opted to uh, give a uh, major tax reduction to mostly corporations and, and some individuals. That will create a trillion and a half dollar deficit. And the answer to that is they say, well, the private sector will finance it. Well, without a source of revenues from something like tolls or other things, you will not be able to issue private sector bonds or raise money in the private sector. You have to have a stream of income. A lot of vital projects like the Gateway Tunnel, which is a structure that is 100 years old through which all the north, south, and east, west railroads pass, uh, that is very difficult to get a source of continuous funding for, unlike an airport or something else. So that requires government input. And the federal government has notified the region uh, that we will not get the $10 billion that was promised to us uh, from President Obama that was withdrawn or reneged upon or whatever. So, so this isn't that's just a Trump problem, is it? It's not simply a Trump-era problem. It is a problem that people have when it comes to infrastructure problems, which are essential over many years and over decades will show their worth but at times when the political cycle and the funding cycle are very tight and people are living four years to four years, not 20 years ahead. What's the answer? Well, the answer is all politics and democracies uh, have uh, schedules of two, four, or six years. And all infrastructure projects, you heard this project started in uh, 1960, and it's not going to be finished for another 25 years or so. And so politicians have a hard time telling their constituents, I'm not going to give you a tax reduction today because your children are going to need a, a water. 
there was talk of a major infrastructure stimulus when Donald Trump came in. Can he deliver on that? I don't believe that uh, he can deliver on that, whatever his intention is. Uh, the reason is that when you're going to induce a trillion and a half dollar deficit in order to give tax reductions, that you cannot increase further the federal deficit by helping to finance these projects. And even though I was personally involved in the private public funding of LaGuardia Airport that we're building, uh, and we have had it work on the Gothels Bridge where we had private public partnerships, the reality is that a portion of major billions of dollars of, of these projects are financed with what they call public activity bonds, meaning that the corporations are able to use the credit status of tax-exempt credit to issue bonds at low cost using the Port Authority's authority. Now, in the new tax bill, they're abolishing public activity bonds. So at the same time as they're saying all this is going to be by, built by public-private partnerships, they're eliminating the very financial vehicle that help finance the public-private partnerships, namely public activity bonds. So we've just emerged back into the daylight, now fading daylight, late afternoon, looking back over at, at Manhattan. It really does look so beautiful from over here. Any parting thoughts on it, Ken? It's, for me, I mean, I will just think a lot more when I drink my water in New York. It's an unfashionable thought, but great civilizations don't just live for now but they live for posterity and they build for posterity. That means sacrificing some things now so that tomorrow will be better for succeeding generations. My thanks to Ken Lipper and the team of engineers there for showing me one of New York's best kept secrets. Last week, we reflected on the startling victory for Democrats in local elections, including in Virginia. It was styled as the revenge of the suburbs, but what about the revenge of the cities and the role of Democrats? Rahm Emanuel again. If we could dig into the 25 years of, since the Clinton anniversary, we were also there at Georgetown this week, and where that leaves the, the Democrats now. I mean, what my feeling, having... 1992 uh, was the first election that, that I covered here, so it was a bit of... A, obviously, I was very young at the time. But the, what are the feelings... We were that, all young at we the were, time. Yeah, we were very... Well, that was what the election was about. It was about hope, but it was also about, I mean, you had a young, the youngest president since John Kennedy, and it was about uh, youthfulness and energy at the end. I mean, it was the first election, actually, where you went from the World War II generation to explicitly the Vietnam generation. And so it was, all, it was in many ways, well, he echoes that, it was a passing of a torch of another generation. Uh, I think you, you were there when you were 93 to 98 as... Uh, senior policy advisor, and you said at some point on that magnificent journey, President Clinton defined the debate not as left versus right, but about going forward versus going backward. Mm -hmm. And the feeling when that came up, and I think you were mentioned a number of times in, in Bill Clinton's speech there in Georgetown, was that it had an almost elegiac term, elegiac, nostalgic. Uh -huh. It had a feeling of, not that, that he was only looking backwards, but that something had been lost along the way. And of course, you can put it down to big social trends and you, uh, you know, whatever it was that you think drove Donald Trump to the White House. But what do Democrats need to regain? 
One of the things I would tell you today, well, the biggest thing that Democrats can do, is have an inclusive economics message that went beyond an urban core into a metropolitan strategy. The issues of transportation, the issues of education, the issues of quality of life are city suburban. They share more commonality than differences. And what I don't want to see my party do is kind of retreat into just being an urban-based party, uh, uh, a very energized 35%, when we need to be a party that builds coalitions. And that has to have an optimistic vision of the future, one in which that is inclusive of other people that don't. We're having this interview just after Virginia. It was because we added people to the Democratic Party, did not exclude them, that you didn't hold and agree with us 100%. A good omen, or uh, don't put How too much. How can you say winning much. is not a good omen? It depends if it's followed if it's followed by more winning, or it turns out well, you know, first you, of all, you too won. much weight on one no. election in Virginia. Well, first of all, you won not only the governor, you won the lieutenant governor, you won the attorney general, you won the House of Delegates, you won races in Seattle, you won races in Minnesota, you won races in uh, New York, you won races in New Jersey. When you look across the spectrum at every different level, Democrats won. Why? Democrats came out, but more importantly for midterm elections, which is not good for Democrats, is swing voters. They're not really anchored by a party, but they're anchored by how they feel at that moment. Have, were open to what we had to say, which is a more positive, inclusive economic but message. Hang on. You know, the positive, inclusive message was pumped out by the Obama administration, and now we have Donald Trump in the White House. So uh, you know, where did Hillary Clinton go wrong along the way, and is any no. of it Obama's well, fault? No. It doesn't seem to take account of anything that happened in between. That wasn't what you were talking about. So cool. let's just go back to the accounting. I think it's key. Look at where we won and look at where we lost. In 1992, Bill Clinton ran on uh, Don't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow and A Kid From Hope. To the people, as he said, in 92 in New York, to people who work hard, play by the rules, and trying to make sure their kids know right from wrong, this is going to be your administration. So it was a middle-class, inclusive economic message that was optimistic about the future. In 96, he ran about building a bridge to the 21st century where everybody crosses together. The times in which we won versus the times we lost, we had an op optimistic, inclusive economic message. When we lost, whether that was under Hillary, John Kerry, or Al Gore, I can't tell you, and I think I'm a pretty active Democrat, what their message was in either one of those elections, but I could recite to you 12, 08, 92, and 96. We can go brief on this because it is such a big subject, but I feel that you know, it, it'd be wrong to come and talk to you without mentioning it. And that is crime and murder rates and criticisms of the way that you've run things on that. It seems to me, and I'm coming to this, I'm coming into the city as an outsider, but I look at the policy uh, a lot around it, that you, you walk a very difficult line here in a city like this, in that you have, you know, quite rightly, a lot more pressure uh, on policing to be fair, to be even-handed. You have movements like Black Lives Matter, which are, uh, are now very vocal and, and have a very visceral sense that something's gone wrong in policing. On the other hand, if you, you know, when you, you tweak towards that, you can find the police officers simply feel disenabled. They're in the moment when perhaps the public would wish that they would act, feel that it's safer not to act. Difficult balance. Has some of the criticism uh, around that, you know, just arisen from that, or are there other reasons? So we have actually, I think, this year you're seeing. First of all, our shootings are down about 20 percent. Our homicides are down about 12 percent. So from we, that, admittedly, quite high. Yeah, but spike. Well, they're, yeah, I, I apologize, but yes, <laughs> yeah, they're down from there because, and that is, you're not going to get a one-year flip. That that would be the wrong are question. Are you clear about why they rose? Yeah, I am clear. I've said it. You look. I'm going to do, we have to do the types of reforms that are necessary for the police, but I'm going to do it with police, not to police. 
I think the debate in the first two years pre my tenure, when things were happening around the country, was done at police and made them reactive. And so we have seen in certain communities, not only reductions off of 2016, reductions off of 2015, when we had what was considered a pretty good year by Chicago. So you're standard. confident the next year's figures will look I did, I didn't say that. How could, how could anybody I say that? I was an interrogator. No, well, that's not the way. You, every day oh, it's a struggle. Could. This is a social, economic, cultural issue. Police are appointed a spear, but there are other things you have to do to replace the uh, 30 to 40 years of deinvestment, not only in communities, but in families. My thanks to Rahm Emanuel, mayor of Chicago. And finally, we make our way back to New York. How important are the characters from Donald Trump's old world in the White House today? I posed that question to author Vicki Ward, a woman tapped into New York's social and political scene. Donald Trump is very much a creature of habit and loyalty. So they still really matter. He still definitely turns to fellow real estate developers like Richard Lefrac for advice but less than before, primarily because of the arrival of his chief of staff, John Kelly, whose job it was to really systematize access, including phone calls, to the Oval Office. Before John Kelly got there in the summer, it was sort of free for all. Anyone and everyone could call the president, and all the people from his old life in real estate did, and he called them, and all that had to stop. So I think that he misses New York, he misses his friends, he does talk to them, but less than he did. And where does that leave the home team that he took from New York with him, like Jared and Ivanka, his daughter and son-in-law? Jared and Ivanka are now most commonly described as creatures of exile. They are nowhere. They no longer are welcome in New York. All their former democratic liberal friends really want nothing to do with them. And in Washington, they're perceived as really naive. In Ivanka's case, not particularly successful at lobbying for what she wants. Jared is perceived as sort of a silent assassin who isn't that smart. So it's really not a great cocktail. Let's talk a bit specifically about Jared Kushner. He did seem to be very influential with the president, but of course the unravelling of the whole Russia saga and the way that has crept up on him has probably made his job more difficult. What are you hearing on that? Yes, Jared Kushner was described recently by the president in a conversation with his former advisor, Roger Stone, as being zero for two. What he meant by that was that Jared has made two major missteps in terms of the advice he's given the president. First, the president thinks it was a really terrible idea to have pushed for the firing of James Comey and Jared Kushner, for all sorts of reasons, pushed for James Comey to be fired. That one act would be described by Steve Bannon as the worst single political act in modern political history. So Donald Trump is still really angry about the fact that because of the Comey firing, he's stuck with this investigation. It's a huge distraction. And he really blames Jared Kushner for all of it. The second problematic thing that Jared did was recommend that Donald Trump campaign for Luther Strange, who was the losing Republican candidate 
in the primary in Alabama. Donald Trump does not like to be on the losing side of anything. And he is cross. And I think that's why we've seen a great deal less of him. Recently, we've also seen a great deal less of Ivanka. And tell me a bit more about the role of Ivanka. She's someone you've known as a a writer around New York for a long time. She has sometimes looked like the more palatable end of the administration. She was on the Asia trip. She went out there, did an event, perhaps to soften up audiences before her father arrived. Is that a role that she's still fulfilling? I think Ivanka is trying her best to run on platforms that are as non-partisan and pleasing to sort of most of us. I mean, it's hard to, f- to quibble with the idea that she's fighting for women in the workplace, for families. I think, however, she has learnt to try to narrow her focus. She's still struggling. You know, I mean, she's learned, you know, Washington, someone described it to me, it's not like doing a New York real estate deal. It's more like racing a Formula One. You have to build from the beginning. It takes a long time to build relationships. And I think Jared and Ivanka have found it harder, which is perhaps to be expected, to sort of go in there and, and do what they want to do. Jared Kushner, given an extraordinarily demanding task by any stretch of the imagination, which is he's supposed to tackle the Middle East. How is that going? Well, it's a work in progress, quite a complicated work in progress, as you'd expect. Recently, he was in Saudi Arabia with Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, with whom he's become quite friendly. And there were reports that they stayed up all night till four in the morning chatting. Days after Jared Kushner and his delegation got back, Mohammed bin Salman orchestrated his crackdown on corruption. Um, you know, arresting a lot of his relatives, which is obviously an event of great political significance. And no one thinks that Jared Kushner knew nothing about it or didn't have a hand in this somehow. So we shall see how all this plays out. Um, I think that people are obviously watching the authoritarian aspect of what's going on in Saudi Arabia quite carefully um, and are unsure of what Kushner's involvement in that may signify. Other than that, you know, we don't we don't really know. I suppose one way out of all this is that Jared and Ivanka at one point or other bid farewell to Washington. They say they did their best, they bedded in dad or dad-in-law. They come back to New York and the town rolls out the red carpet or maybe not. Possible? Well, look, anything is possible. I think they would have to really work uh, some of their former friends. They'd have to really warm up a very frosty media, which is a big component of this town's establishment, actually. But look, I think Jared and Ivanka are overflowing with the social graces. And this is a town where, you know, we've seen again and again people come to reinvent themselves. So if it's possible, for them to have a comeback. They can pull it off, and this is the city to pull it off. So I would say let's wait and see. Well, we should let you get back to your New York social world. Thanks for talking to us, Vicky Ward. Thank you, Anne. Well, that's all for this special on Donald Trump and the cities. Do join me again for the third and final instalment of our road trip, where we'll be looking at Trump and America's female voters. I'm Anne McElvoy. From New York, this is The Economist. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.